You have a divided heart. A pure heart is a heart without war. It wants one thing, seeks one thing, desires one thing, to love God, and in that, to love others. Well, good morning, Christ Church. My name is Matthew Boffey. I'm a member here and also a summer intern, and I'm grateful to be bringing God's Word to you this morning. Normally, we would look at some notes uh, from, from our kids and our congregation t- who took notes on last week's sermon. Unfortunately, we didn't get any this week. We hope that's just a fluke because we really love seeing those and, and seeing that our kids are engaged in the service and are learning God's Word and, you know, drawing and painting and colored pencils and all of that. It's just so much fun. So kids, I hope you're taking notes this morning, and we look forward to seeing them next week. Let's turn now to our passage. This morning we're in James 3, verses 13 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father God, please direct my words and accompany your word with power that it would plant in our hearts and bear a harvest of righteousness for your name's sake. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to uh, age myself a little bit, and by that I mean show how young I am, by uh, opening my sermon by mentioning a a pretty well-known YouTube video. I I look to see it has 15 million views. Uh, This thing I think I saw when I was a sophomore in high school, so well over 10 years ago. And the video is a nature walk, is what it's called. And it's this guy walking through a forest in Colorado and just pointing out things about nature and how neat nature is. And probably one of the most quoted lines in that, um, in that video is when he walks up to an aspen tree. He says, oh, score, an aspen. You can tell it's an aspen tree because of the way it is. And of course, what's so funny about that is you could say that about just about anything. Oh, you can tell what this is because of the way it is. Well, in our our passage today, it's kind of asking the question, what is the way of wisdom? How can you tell wisdom when you see it? And I'll tell you, it's a lot harder to discern wisdom than it is an aspen tree. An aspen tree, it's okay, here's a uh, a fairly small trunk. It's got a bit of a, you know, more white bark and uh, it usually grows in groves. You know, okay, I see that that's wisdom. In our world, a lot passes as wisdom that's not actually wisdom. And so really what we're seeing in our text today 
is a contrast between true wisdom, wisdom from above, and counterfeit wisdom, wisdom from below. And specifically, we're going to look at three, uh, three different areas of comparison for each of them. The first is the soil of each. We're going to stick with that tree metaphor. The soil of each, the roots of each, and then the fruit of each. That is, the soil of each. You know, where, uh, from where do these trees spring? Uh, the roots of each, you know, what are the origins of these wisdom? Where are they, uh, these two different wisdoms, where do they come from? And then the fruit of each, you know, how do you, you recognize a tree by its fruit, Jesus said. So what is the fruit of godly wisdom? What is the fruit of, of earthly wisdom? And then finally, we'll end by uh, just talking a bit about how do you grow in each? How do you grow in each? So uh, a set of contrasts to help us discern true wisdom and uh, counterfeit wisdom. Well, let's start with our first point, the soil of each. Let's look down at, at verse 13, learn about the soil of, of true wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, last week, Nate preached about how our words flow from our hearts. Uh, James, just like Jesus taught, uh, showed us that what is in our hearts will eventually come out onto our lips. Well, James is now continuing in that same vein, but he's expanding a little bit to, be, to, to talk not just about words, but about our conduct. He's basically saying, prove that you have wisdom by your conduct, not simply by what you might say about yourself. You can almost think of James <clears throat> like he is standing in the front of a classroom posing a challenge to the class. Who is wise and under understanding among you? Come and show yourself. Let's see if you have wisdom and understanding. Come prove it to us. Well, put yourself in that situation. Say you're in this classroom. If there was truly a wise person in the room, do you think that they would quickly rise from their seat, kind of strut to the front of the room and show that they have wisdom and understanding? No. I think most of our conceptions of people who have true wisdom see that it's often accompanied by this word, meekness. In meekness, they would not strut, strut to the front. They would probably keep their head down for a little while. Uh, and ideally, in the vein of this passage, it would probably be somebody else who would say, uh, you know, no one's raising their hand, but I think you should look at Sarah. You know, Sarah's she's got her life in order. You know, she's gentle, and she's kind, and she's generous, and she's open to reason, and all these words that we read in our passage. You know, she's got a reputation that proves that she has wisdom. So meekness really is like a lack of selfish ambition, and uh, instead a, a deference to the needs of others. You know, it reminds, when I think of meekness, someone I think about is St. Gregory the Great. He was a, a pope in the late 6th century, and, you know, even more in the 6th century than now, you know, the papacy was one of the most powerful and influential positions you could have. I mean, men would clamor for that role. Anybody would want to be the pope. But Pope Gregory had to basically be dragged into it. He resisted. In fact, he was chastised uh, for resisting the call. And the reason he didn't want to is he didn't want the temptation of power. He didn't want the interruption of power. He wanted to, to stay a, a monk and stay living a simple, quiet life. But it was actually his lack of selfish ambition, 
paired with his true wisdom that made him such a good pope. I mean, a, a, a lot of the sort of um, culture of charity in Catholicism is due in large part to St. Gregory the Great. He was a man of, of good works and mercy, and he, he established um, orphanages and uh, almsgiving and all, all sorts of things like, like that as you know, part of the structure of the Catholic Church. And those are signs of wisdom. So this is a soil of wisdom from above, meekness. It is accompanied by a reticence to, um, to power and control and instead by a submissive spirit to God and deference to the needs of others. In that way, it is exactly the opposite of bitter selfishness or bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. This is the soil in which the wisdom from below grows. Now, why bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? That was one of the first questions that I asked as I was preparing this text. It, the phrase comes up twice, so it's not incidental that James is using this language. Why contrast meekness with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? Well, it helps if you consider, uh, if, 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 yeah, if you consider that the word translated jealousy can also be translated as zeal. Now, zeal, and that word often is translated that way, zeal in a different context can be very good. Uh, for example, it's zeal for God's holiness that leads Jesus to drive out money changers from the temple in the New Testament. It's also zeal that in the Old Testament, um, Phineas is... Uh, there are there are Israelites among them that are are engaged in idolatry, and Phineas drives them out of the camp, uh, so to speak, and does that to maintain the purity of Israel. It's again that zealousness for God's holiness and God's reputation. <clears throat> so zeal for the Lord is is a as a strong, sometimes stern commitment to His holiness. But when we put bitter in front of this word zeal. Uh, and bitter here is actually the same word that's used in verse 11 about salt, um, basically saying it is, you know, fresh water is not supposed to be giving salt, uh, you know, a salty taste. In the same way, our zeal should not have this bitterness to it. Bitter zeal is a twisted zeal. It's a zeal that ought, it ought to be directed uh, toward the Lord, but it has been twisted in on itself, and now it's actually directed at us. We have zeal for our own reputations, our own glory. So it's this turn inwardness, and that's why James is pitting it against meekness and says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That is, don't lie about what's in your heart. If you strut to the front of the room to show how much wisdom and understanding you have, you've actually revealed that you are full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and you've made yourself a liar. So James is saying that wisdom springs from a certain kind of soil, and that is meekness. Conversely, wisdom from below springs from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And before we move on to consider uh, the roots of these two wisdoms, I would, I would ask you, you know, what soil are you cultivating in your heart? You know, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that meekness is something that we just drift toward. It's something that we have to... Um, cultivate. And my question for us is, how often do we think about meekness? You know, does it ever make our, our to-do list? 
You know, is it in our five-year plan to grow in meekness? You know, I confess that it's not something I think about that often until I come upon a passage like this and see just how critical it is to the life of wisdom. So here's a diagnostic, uh, diagnostic question for you to help you discern where, you're all, where you are on that um, meekness to selfish ambition spectrum. How much of your thought life is concerned with how you are moving forward in the world or moving up the ladder in the world? How much is concerned with how you are stooping down to help others and to make much of God? This is the question of meekness. Well, let's move on to uh, talk about the roots of the two wisdoms. We've covered the soil. What are the roots? Verse 15 is is where we, we find the answer to this. Verse 15 says that one form of wisdom comes down from above, and the other is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. James is getting at the origins of each, the origins of wisdom and the origins of counterfeit wisdom. And Scripture actually provides us, basically, origin stories of both of these. And so let's take a look at them. The origin story of of wisdom, I think, is displayed for us powerfully, beautifully, in Proverbs 8. Uh, Proverbs 8 is uh, wisdom personified as lady, as lady wisdom, and she's giving a speech, and she's really trying to draw people to, to come to her and to embrace her. And, and this is what she says about herself. This is just part of the passage. She describes herself, before I read, she describes herself really as a, as a handmaiden to God's creation, as there as it was being brought forth. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. A few verses later, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made the skies, or when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing in his, inhabit, in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Isn't that so lovely? I mean, it sounds like paradise. And it is. That's the point. This wisdom that we are looking at in James, it is the same wisdom. It was handmade into God's creation. And James is calling us now to have this wisdom live in our lives and rule in our lives and order our lives. Well, let's look at the origins of wisdom from below, which James calls earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And with each of these, he's sort of ratcheting up how wicked this counterfeit wisdom is. Earthly, yeah, that makes sense. Unspiritual, yep, makes sense. Demonic, whoa, demonic? Isn't that a little intense? Are you saying that I'm near demon-possessed every time I uh, act according to wisdom of the earth? No, I I don't think demon possession is what's in view here. What he's talking about is the source and the nature of this kind of wisdom. The the Bible does not give a definitive origin story to, you know, where did Satan come from? How did he get to earth? You know, where did evil come from? You know, it, it, it helps us get toward an answer to that question, but it doesn't provide a truly clear, you know, tight answer to that. However, there are a couple passages in, in the prophets that give us a pretty plausible theory of, you know, where Satan come, uh, came from, and they actually align very well with what James is describing here 
as the roots of earthly wisdom. Consider this is from uh, Isaiah. This is a passage of, of God, presumably speaking to uh, Lucifer. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Or Ezekiel, he says, Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. <clears throat> well, we consider when we consider these words, and when we consider that the serpent's uh, temptation in the garden to Eve was that she could be like God, and when you consider that Satan tempted Jesus with fame and with power, it's easy to see then that Satan's heart is bursting with selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. I mean, this is his M.O. He wants to be God so, so badly. And in this sense, the wisdom from below is demonic. That is, it is like the devil. You know, as Westerners and materialists, we don't like to think much about principalities and spiritual forces and spiritual warfare, and Satan would love for it to stay that way. You know, there's a quote uh, from the unusual suspects, but it's probably passed from something else. It goes, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. We must be willing to acknowledge that sometimes we think and desire and behave just like the devil. We should not water it down. You may remember that Jesus, after uh, he announced to his disciples that he would suffer and die, you know, Peter took him aside and said, Lord, it, no way, that's not happening to you. And Jesus rebuked him back and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It is demonic to follow a wisdom that opposes the king of glory. So these are the origins of the two wisdoms. You know, perhaps the starkest difference between the two is that with one wisdom, God founded and formed the earth. And because of the other wisdom, he destroyed the earth. And I'm talking about uh, the flood. You know, it says that uh, basically the wickedness of man had just escalated to a point that God lamented that he had made the world and wanted to start over. This kind of wisdom we should not take lightly. It is dark. It is destructive. It grieves the Father. So we've looked at the soil of each. We've looked at the roots of each. Now let's turn to look, lastly, at the fruit of each. Let's look at verse 16 the fruit of um, the wisdom from below. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. You know, at this point, we've pretty well established why jealousy and selfish ambition give way to disorder and every vile practice. It's because they are inherently godless. Whereas godly wisdom, as we see in creation, is that which gives order and is, uh, creates peace in life, Earthly wisdom introduces chaos and disorder 
in strife and death. You know, in quick succession, after Adam and Eve d- disobeyed in the garden, you know, there was blaming where there had once been like poetry and they're rejoicing over being united to each other. Now they're blaming each other. Where there was a blessing before, there's now cursing. You know, God curses Adam and Eve and the serpent in the ground. And there's, you know, where there's life on life, this beautiful creation story. You know, the first story we read out of, out of Eden is Cain killing Abel, brother against brother. And from there it just spirals. You know, the whole Old Testament is uh, mankind's really spiral into disorder as a result of spurting God's wisdom. And I mean, that's the history of, of the world. This is because earthly wisdom defies the way that things are meant to be. You know, it's common, but it is not normal, earthly wisdom. It is not the way it was meant to be. Proverbs says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. What a summation of the problems of the world, and not just the world some far off place, but the world in our own lives. I mean, I think we all feel this. We can point to something in our past where we followed earthly wisdom and the chaos that ensued. We don't want to live again. We don't have to look into the past. We can look into our lives right now. Relationships that remain fractured because of harsh words, unrepentant spirits, maybe a wayward spouse or uh, an estranged child. Um, Maybe you have problems at at work. Uh, Maybe you have substance abuse abuse issues or a gambling problem. Your finances are out of control. Maybe you are suffering at the hands of somebody else's disorder, somebody else's, um, you know, evil and, and wickedness, and you are tasting the rotten fruit of that. We wound and are wounded because disorder runs rampant in our lives. And so this cycle, this spiral, oh, for the mercy to get out of it, to step one inch outside of this cycle and stand on sure ground to eat fruit from a different tree. Let's turn now to consider this better fruit, the superior fruit, the fruit of wisdom. It it opens up to us in this passage, like it is light and air, it just, it soars. These virtues are so beautiful and life-giving. And they are, are, they are presented uh, less like a list and more like a chain. One virtue successively giving way to the next. And it starts with purity. Here it says in verse 16, the wisdom from above, or 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, I think it's important to ask, why is purity uh, placed first like it is here? Well, Soren Kierkegaard said that purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. And that that works with our text very well. In context, purity of heart, uh, the purity here is a purity of heart before God, a heart that desires to make known God, uh, not the self, or make a name for God and not for the self. So we see then that a pure heart means a heart that's not infested with selfish ambition. And when a heart 
is free of selfish ambition. When that goes out of the way, so goes competition with each other, so goes slander and anger and self-insistence and quarreling. In fact, if you read a little bit ahead, quarreling is the problem that James is ultimately driving at in our passage. He says a couple of verses later, there are quarrels among you, and is it not because of this, that your passions are at war with each other? You have a divided heart. A pure heart is a heart without war. It wants one thing, seeks one thing, desires one thing, to love God, and in that, to love others. From such a heart flows a wisdom that is peaceable, that is gentle, that is open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. It does not insist on its own way because it does not have its own way. It has given itself over to the way of God. You might notice that this portion of our text sounds a lot like two other pretty well-known lists in the the New Testament. In fact, as I think about it, it it sounds a lot too uh, like the list that we see in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. But the first two that I'm thinking of are the fruit of the Spirit and the Beatitudes. And on the fruit of the Spirit, one commentator I was reading noted that James actually never uses the word Spirit or, or names the Holy Spirit in this letter in that instead, wisdom sort of functions as a, as a stand-in for the Spirit. And that fits with what we see here. I mean, James describes wisdom from above, the fruit of that wisdom, almost identical with what we see in the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Sounds a lot like what we see here. Same can be said of the Beatitudes. Some of the Beatitudes read, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. You know, peace, uh, you see peaceable and then uh, harvest of righteousness and so is sown in peace by those who make peace. I mean, peace becomes a major theme at the end of our text. And here, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, after a harvest of righteousness. It's all here. Church, this text is calling us to a subversive way of living. We live in a brash world, a harsh world, a competitive dog-eat-dog world. It is not the way of Christ. Those who seek to be meek, to make peace, to be pure in heart, to be open to reason, to be peaceable, will look strange, will look small, will look dull, will be thought of as losers. You won't be flashy. You won't make headlines. You will more than likely be persecuted. But if you want to change the world, if you want to change your little plot of land, if you want a life that endures, to leave a legacy that endures then take a little seed of wisdom, sow it in peace, and watch it tower to the sky. The wisdom of the world will not solve the problems of the world. We need a higher wisdom. We need a wisdom not of this world to break into this world. You cannot solve 
your problems with your wisdom. It won't bring peace to your marriage to stonewall your spouse or to insist on your own way. It won't bring true success to your career for you to manipulate your way to the top. Righteousness is not going to prevail on the earth in our public discourse if we continue shouting at each other and ridiculing each other and canceling each other and doing whataboutism and committing to tribalism. We are so prone to solving our problems with a hammer and an iron fist, totally oblivious to the fact that that never works. It only makes things worse. God calls us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to turn the other cheek, to wash one another's feet, to give our enemy something to drink when he is thirsty, to decrease in order that he might increase, to ask Jesus not, can I sit at your right or left when I come into your kingdom, but which of the least of these can I serve? Who do I walk the extra mile with? Who do I give my extra tunic to? Who do I give to when they beg? We are royally ruining our lives the longer we persist in worldly wisdom. We're just adding disorder and chaos where there's plenty already. Well, all this raises the question then, we see what kind of wisdom we want. The question is, how do we get it? You know, I could offer some practical, practical tips from this passage, and, and I, I'm going to send a little video out with a few ideas. But for now, I want to major on what this passage majors on, and that is the heart. Ultimately, getting wisdom is making a choice of the heart. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is not ultimately about what you know, you know, how much Aristotle you can quote, or what political theories you can run circles around. It's not even about how you behave, you know, how much you hold your tongue or when you say the right thing at the right time. It's not even just that. Wisdom is primarily a question of who your God is. Who your God is. To get earthly wisdom, we need no instruction. We are born knowing how to have earthly wisdom. It is to be a God unto ourselves. It is to say, oh, with the fool, there is no God. The fundam that fundamental belief is how you continue to grow in earthly wisdom. But if you want heavenly wisdom, Proverbs 4, 7 says this. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. <laughs> well, thanks, Proverbs. That's helpful. It's a little cyclical, right? How do I get wisdom? I get wisdom. Well, yeah, but I was just asking how I got wisdom. If it were that easy, we would have wisdom in high supply. That's the second part of this verse that provides a bit of a caveat. Though it costs you all you have, Get understanding. Wisdom is not hard to get. Wisdom is hard to want because wisdom inherently demands self-denial. The pursuit of wisdom is the end of self. It is to let a new life replace your old life. It is to let a new law replace you as a law unto yourself. It is to make your life's ambition about not 
you. And that goes against the grain of your heart and my heart and every message that we see. We cannot get around this. Wisdom gets to the bottom of our heart and asks us, what do you really want? What do you really want? In that sense, it presents a choice to us. And we're going to frame this as a choice between between two very well-known trees. The first tree is the one our first parents ate from. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the choice to be our own gods. In Genesis, Satan tempts Eve with the lie that she can be like God. He says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of, the, of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so all of our problems began. And yet we dare to still call this wisdom. But then a new Adam came, and a new tree was lifted up. A rugged, common, crude tree. And on that tree, our new Adam hung in obedience to God until he died. There's no lower place in the world than a Roman cross. And there the king of kings hung, despised and rejected yet high and lifted up. The new tree tells us where the old tree leads us. But at that new tree is Jesus saying, I have tasted the end of that road for you, so you don't have to taste it. The call of Christ is to believe in him, that you may never die that you may have life and have it to the full, to have it as he intended it. Will we have eyes to see that it is in fact the world that is walking upside down and that Christ came to show us how to walk uprightly? Will we have faith to believe that the cross of Christ is a gift to us because it kills what kills us and it gives us new life in him? Will we have courage to practice true wisdom though the world thinks it's folly? Well, we will have none of these things until we choose to climb up on that tree and put to death our self-will and say, not my will, but yours be done. The message of the gospel is that death leads to life. Surrender to salvation, humility, to exaltation. Consider what has become already of worldly wisdom because of the gospel. The gospel has flipped the script. In the gospel, you are on the right side of history, no matter what it looks like. Here it is. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus has solved our wisdom problem, which is our sin problem, which is our death problem. We were spiraling out of control and he has made a new way back to paradise. So church, how do you grow in this wisdom? You cling to this tree. Though it looks like folly, it is your wisdom rising up to eternal life. And from this tree grows the fruit that we desire so much to see in our own lives and that the world longs to see though it does not know it. May we show the world true wisdom by our good conduct that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, oh God, please give us the mercy and the grace to walk in true wisdom, to renounce our own ways, our own desires, and submit joyfully to your wisdom, to your cross, to the message of the gospel, walking by the Spirit. In your son's name we pray. Amen.